Well, missed all of you last week, me and my family. We had a good vacation this last week, very restful, fun time with one another, as restful as it could be with five children, ages 11, 10, 7, 5, and 2, but really as restful as we needed it to be and as restful as we would even want it to be. So lots of rest, fun, and a lot of ice cream. A lot of ice cream. We issued an edict early on in the trip that we were to eat ice cream every day, and we did. Mass amounts. Even if we weren't hungry, we would eat ice cream because we were committed, committed to the cause. Um, I want to start, uh, I want to offer an apology. Pastor Curtis, I, I don't remember if he mentioned to this service or not, but we were going to begin a new order of service that we've talked about today with uh, new bulletins, and uh, we decided to push that one week. Uh, that all would have been ready if it wasn't for me. I made a, a change sort of last minute and said, let's hold off and, and do it next week uh, with the vacation, not having the time that uh, I wanted to to be able to make sure things were uh, in order. So anyway, those of you who came expecting that today and were disappointed, uh, I apologize, but we'll move forward with that next week and looking forward to that. So, Lord willing, starting this morning, we'll begin our, our Colossians sermon series, which will last 19 sermons as I've gone through the book and outlined it, as you can see on those sermon cards that you have in the seat back in front of you, um, a part of the sermon series anyway. Um, 19 sermons. Uh, Beginning today, looking at Colossians, an amazing little book. If you haven't opened there yet, please turn there. If you're using one of the Bibles uh, that we provide for you, it's on page 638. Amazing book here in Colossians about Christ and the changed new life that Christians have in Christ. That is what Colossians is about. Colossians is about Christ and the new life, the changed life that Christians have in Christ. I would encourage you to read through this book. You can sit down and read through it in probably half an hour. Some of you may want to discipline yourself to read it once a week as we're going through the series. If you really wanted to immerse yourself in this book, it doesn't take long to read it from beginning to end. And what I'd like to do today is, is my custom when we do sermon series through books is to begin the sermon series with a sort of introduction. So this morning will be an introduction to the book of Colossians. I hope it will be helpful for you today, but not just for today, but for future sermons as well, sort of laying a foundation so we can get our bearings together and understand what it is that we are reading and hopefully make the rest of the sermon series uh, intelligible for you uh, and good and helpful. So three things today. Uh, that I would like to look at by way of introduction, the author of the book of Colossians, the recipients of this letter, and the content of this letter, which I will look to summarize this morning. So who wrote this book? Who did he write it to? And what is this book about? Let's summarize that. Let me pray and we'll get started. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day that you've made. A beautiful day because you're behind it and in it. We thank you for um, giving us a time this morning to worship you, to come together as a, as a body and as a family, sing songs to you, to pray to you, to commune with you, uh, to listen to the preaching of your word, to read your word together. God, we pray that you would be glorified 
and honored in our time together. Make us an honorable people. Make us a glorifying people. Make us a people even now who uh, free ourselves up from the distractions we came in here with so that we could listen to Your Word. So that we could hear deeply and rightly Your truth. And we pray that by Your Spirit, You'd apply it to our hearts. We talk about change and the work You do in Your people. God, we desire to see more of that work in us and more of that work in people around us. So, God, we pray that as we are blessed today, that You would be blessed today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, again, page 638, if you're using one of those white Bibles. Let's first answer the question, who wrote this letter? It's answered quickly. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. The very first word of the book of Colossians, as was custom in this day, identifies the author of the letter you're about to read. We sign our name at the end of a letter, typically, when we send it to someone. Uh, In this day, you would start off by announcing yourself as the writer of the letter. So we learn right off the bat, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is the writer of this letter. Let's make sure we're on the same page, that we know who Paul is, that we remember who Paul is. As these people were reading this letter, to read that name at the very beginning and to know that what you were about to read was written to you by Paul, the Paul, the Apostle Paul, that would have been a very big deal. Paul was significant in the early church. He is probably the second most significant human being in the New Testament behind Jesus Christ. So what do we know about Paul? If you are visual and you like to imagine the person writing as you're reading his writing, we do have a physical description of him. Not from Scripture, but from a book written in the year 150. In that book, we learn that Paul was rather short. You picture that. He was rather stout. Picture that. Had a long nose. Was bow-legged with a unibrow. So there you go. There's the image. You may choose to try to get rid of that image now, but that's that's who's writing this letter. Uh, nothing uh, tremendously impressive about Paul physically, um, but who Paul was, uh, his identity, who he was in Christ, was of great significance. And we find that by reading his, his letters. Uh, the most influential leader in the early church, I think we can say that, uh, wrote most of the New Testament of your Bible. There's 27 books. 13 of them were written by Paul. Yet, he did not become a follower of Christ until he was 30 years old. So the first 30 years of his life were, were not honoring to God, though he thought they were honoring to God. He becomes, as you know, a pastor to Christians. But before he was a pastor of and to Christians, he was a persecutor of Christians, which is sort of the opposite of a pastor. Before he was a missionary, he was a murderer. And Paul was zealous in this. He was not a follower of Christ. 
He was not a supporter of Christ or Christianity. In fact, Paul was devoted to seeing the end of Christianity. This is the man that we find converted. He was from Tarsus, which was the largest Roman province in Cilicia and home to a great university. Paul learned the trade of tent making. That's how he made his living. And then he studied in the Pharisaic school of Rabbi Gamaliel, who was a famous rabbi, where he became a full-blown Pharisee. The Pharisees were a religious sect like the Sadducees. You may read about them. Or the Essenes. Or even some of the revolutionaries in the first century. The Pharisees were just another religious sect. They were very popular with people. They were typically well-liked by the people, revered by the common people, and they were characterized by extra-biblical traditions which they obeyed as a means of applying God's law and as a means of being righteous and justified before God. Lots of rules, lots of laws, many of them not biblical, but extra-biblical, Rules on top of rules to make sure that we keep the good rules. So lots and lots of regulation. uh, Felt proud in their obedience to the law and their laws and tended to look down on any who didn't obey and follow the same laws that they did. Which is why J.C. Ryle says the Pharisees were, quote, self-righteous, tradition-worshipping formalists. That's really who they were. So they were driven by and they believed saved by what they did. I do these things in this way. I accomplish this. I accomplish that. And by that, I am saved by God. I please God. I remain in His favor. Now those of you who know the Gospel know that that's not the Gospel. That's anti Gospel. We are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what Christ did. So we're justified not by the works that we do. We're justified by our faith, our taking hold of, our trusting in Jesus and what He did. And through Christ, we are acceptable before God and we are even pleasing to God. So that is not what Paul believed. He did not believe what we believe. Upon the completion of his education where he was raised up as a Pharisee, he probably returned home to Tarsus. But he ends up back in Jerusalem uh, sometime soon after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we find in the book of Acts, which is a, a historical book in your New Testament following the Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you want to read about the history of what happened after Jesus was crucified, You read the book of Acts. And there we pick up the story with Paul and find that he is there now in his late 20s. And in his late 20s, as a Pharisee, and there in Jerusalem and the surrounding communities with the goal of exterminating Christianity. So that is his agenda. That's his mission. Is to exterminate Christianity. And he was ambitious in that. And he was sincere in that. He did think that he was honoring God by fighting Christ. This is what he was confronted with in Acts chapter 9. 
Galatians 1.14, Paul said of himself, reflecting back, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So he was at like the top of the class, if you will. He is the, the, the Pharisaic valedictorian. He is the one that um, others are beneath academically and, uh, and, 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 and even in their zeal. Paul was leading the pack. So he goes to the heart, right? as far as geographically speaking, he goes to the heart of Christianity. He heads to Jerusalem where that fire is burning most brightly. He gets the authority and the papers in order that he needs to go from town to town to do his best to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. So we find him taking Christians prisoner and we even find him overseeing the murder of Christians like the stoning of Stephen that we read about in the book of Acts. So something obviously changed because that Saul, which was his name before he was converted, that we're describing and thinking about is not the Paul that we read about in the rest of the New Testament. That is not the man who's writing these letters who loves Jesus, who is devoted to Jesus and devoted to His people. So I'd encourage you, maybe this week, read Acts chapter 9 again. It is one of the greatest stories in your Bible. In Acts chapter 9, we read about the conversion of Saul. We read about what God did to stop him in his tracks, quite literally, and turn him around. You remember he's on the way to Damascus. And as he's on his way to Damascus, where he has the papers, again, he's been given the authority to do what he feels he needs to do to fight against Christ and Christianity. Well, on his way to Damascus, he meets Jesus. Which for those of you who are Christians, that's what happened to all of you, right? You may not have been on the road to Damascus, but you met Jesus. You heard Jesus. You came to know Jesus and His Word and His truth. And it shook you and it rattled you, and it changed you, and you're different now because of that. Well, this is exactly what happened to Saul. He was blinded. He recalls in Acts chapter 26 that the bright light was so bright that it knocked them all to the ground. He was blinded, and then, ironically, he was led blind and helplessly. He was led to the home of Ananias, who would have been one of the Christians and disciples of Jesus that he was looking to imprison. He says, okay, I want you to go now, and you're going to meet with this man, Ananias, and God tells him, Jesus tells him, I'm going to tell him you're coming. So Jesus gets in touch with Ananias. Remember that? says, hey, you're going to have a visitor. Ananias says, who? And he says, Saul. And Ananias says, wait. I could have sworn you just said, Saul. This is not somebody that, this is somebody that you know, Ananias would be hiding from. Running from. Avoiding. And so God tells him, listen, I've saved him. He's a new man. You don't need to worry about him anymore. Okay, I've tamed him, sort of. And I'm going to use him now for my glory and for my kingdom. And so Jesus leads Saul to Ananias' home. It's clear that he has been converted, that he has come to know and find out that he has been persecuting God. And he has been persecuting Jesus. So his allegiance immediately shifts. The next day, 
Hear that. The next day, he is publicly preaching Jesus is the Son of God. So dramatic. So in, in, in a day, from persecutor to pastor, from murderer to missionary, and he ends up serving Jesus for the last 30 years of his life. First 30 years, not. Last 30 years, serving Jesus until tradition tells us around 64 AD, he was beheaded under the rule of Nero during the first official or imperial persecution of Christians that was taking place. So Paul is writing this letter. That's who we're listening to. And he's writing this letter. He says, and Timothy, our brother. So Timothy's there with him. We're not surprised to hear that Timothy was there with him. Timothy was a pastor of a large church in Ephesus, but when he wasn't with his church, he was with Paul. He loved Paul. Paul was like his father. Evidently, he didn't have a godly father. Fathers never mentioned. But Paul was like a father to him, and Timothy was like a son to Paul. Paul loved Timothy. Timothy was the guy when Paul was feeling discouraged, he just wanted to see Timothy. He just wanted to spend time with Timothy. Out of the 13 letters that Paul wrote, Timothy shows up in 10 of those letters. Paul met Timothy. You can read about that in Acts 2. Paul met Timothy in Lystra. Paul was on one of his missionary journeys. He stops in Lystra and is super impressed with this teenager named Timothy. In fact, he's so impressed that he asks Timothy's mom and grandma if Timothy can, can go with him as a missionary and pastor. They sign off and Paul recruits him and takes him with him and they begin to form their bond and their relationship. So that's Paul. And Paul is writing this letter. He is the author and he is there with Timothy. Let's talk about the recipients of this letter. If Paul is writing this letter, who did Paul write this letter to? Verse 2 tells us. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And then he gives his brief blessing. He did this a lot. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace to you. May God give you grace. May God give you peace. He's writing to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So they are the recipients. The Christians that are in this town of Colossae. The local church that is gathering and assembling there in Colossae. So here's Paul. He's probably in prison, we think, when he's writing this letter. Probably imprisoned in Rome. He's writing this letter. He's writing also the letter Philemon and the letter Ephesians. We think he's writing those about the same time. And he's going to send all three of those letters out to their corresponding recipients. Here he is in prison. And he's thinking about this little church that's in this town of Colossae. A very small town and a very insignificant town. This isn't like Corinth, to whom he wrote 1st 2nd Corinthians, or Ephesus, to whom he wrote Ephesians. This is a very small, podunk sort of town. Not famous, not well known. In fact, a hundred years from the date at which he's writing, no one's going to live in Colossae. The town's not even going to be around anymore. 
It was north of Ephesus, and you had to go through the Lycus Valley to get there from Ephesus. And there was a main road that traveled north and south through it. But some years after this, that main road is moved about, my understanding, is 15 miles to the west. And once that main road moved, there was really no reason to go to Colossae. But Paul writes a letter because there's Christians there. Because there's a church there. Now this begs the question, because as best we can tell, as we read through the New Testament, Paul never went to Colossae. Never visited. None of the apostles ever went there. Now most of these towns or cities where there is a church and where there are Christians, there's a church there and there are Christians there because Paul stopped there on one of his missionary journeys or one of the apostles stopped there, shared the Gospel, people got saved, and and a church was built. But Colossae doesn't really fit that. Paul's never been there. The apostles have never been there. Small town. Insignificant town. So here's what we can infer or or deduct from Scripture. Apparently, what happened is while Paul was in Ephesus, which was a short distance south of Colossae, and Paul, we can read about in Acts, was there for three years ministering and preaching the Gospel. Well, while Paul was ministering in Ephesus, a man named Epaphras made his way south to hear Paul preach the Gospel. He went to a Billy Graham crusade. This is what happened. He went and heard Paul preach the Gospel. Believed the Gospel. Was converted in Ephesus. What does a Christian do after they're converted and come to believe the Gospel? They start telling people the Gospel. He went back home. Began to share the Gospel with his family. With his friends. People were converted. People became Christians. Now there's a church in Colossae. Because one man, one man heard and believed the Gospel and went back to his community and became a proclaimer of that Gospel and became a leader of people toward Christ. This is what Christians do. This is how the the Gospel spreads. A Christian comes to hear the good news and believe the good news and says that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. The greatest thing I've ever heard. Every other good news just became bad news to me. Right? Incomparable. Incomparable. Though I am far more sinful than I ever even dared to believe, I am far more loved and accepted in Christ than I ever even dared to hope. It's like too good to be true good news that actually is true. That's the Gospel. There is nothing like it. Because you are spiritually bankrupt, destitute, cannot please on your own a holy, good, righteous God. You're indifferent to a God who's been nothing but good to you, who made you, created you, sustains you, loves you, blesses you. And so we're facing, all of us, judgment from this God. Because He's a good and right God who doesn't let sin go. But He sends His Son, Jesus, to live a perfect life in the place of sinners. 
And he sends his son Jesus then to die in the place of sinners. Taking the punishment that sinners deserve so that in Christ we can be pleasing to God. We can be accepted by God. We can be reconciled to God. And you can have joy unimaginable because you can be brought to God. That's the best news. So how do we get more Christians? We get more Christians by Christians sharing the Gospel. Romans 10 talks about this. Hey, how are they going to hear unless someone comes and, and tells them the good news? That's why the, the, even the feet of those who bring good news, that's a beautiful thing. Because it's bringing the best news ever. But what does a Christian do? Do we convert people? Do we make people Christians? Some have tried to do that in history. Some try to do that today. Some Christians even feel burdened to do that. I need to make some Christians. I need another notch on my evangelism belt. And we develop all these tactics, right, to, to push people into becoming Christians or to emotionally manipulate people into becoming Christians. We preach gospelless messages, maybe even, that just talk about how hot hell is. Do you want to run from that? And everybody says, Of course I want to run from that. Of course I want to run from that. Well, turn to Jesus. We don't talk about what that means, but just do it. Sign this card. Raise your hand. Say this prayer. Okay, you're good. You're saved. Really, that's it? Yeah, goodbye. Not good news. And that's not what a Christian should do. A Christian hears this good news, believes this good news, and wants to tell others this good news, but a Christian knows that he has not been given the burden to save people. And given the burden to plant seed. Maybe to water that seed. And then the Christian goes home, gets on his knees, and prays. says, listen, I can plant a seed, I can water a seed, but I know that God has to grow this seed. The Christian doesn't convert people, doesn't save people, just obeys God and becomes a part of the process as God has called them to be. And so this is what you do, I hope. I hope those that you love, those that you care about, those that you know, you're looking for ways or you are, you're sharing the Gospel. You're sharing the good news of who Jesus is. You're not telling them to turn or burn. You're not trying to emotionally manipulate them. You're not forcing them. Parents, I hope you don't do this with your kids. Love Jesus or else. Right? Believe the Gospel or else. You can't do that. You can't make somebody love Jesus. You can't make somebody believe the Gospel. But you share the Gospel, don't you? Parents, you do this with your kids. Do you share the Gospel with your kids? And then do you pray? Do you pray? Do you assume that your kids are Christians because you're a Christian? Is it like a genetic thing? They inherit your faith. This is not how it works. You need to be diligent and bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then you pray for them. You pray, God, save my, save my son. Save my daughter. Do you pray for your children if you have children that way? Do you pray in front of your children that way? It's okay. You pray for them and say, God, intensify this love that they have for you. Because your kid, if you're a Christian, your kids are going to love Jesus. They're going to love Je unless you're really screwing up. Your kids are going to love Jesus because you love Jesus. And they love you. And they trust you. So if you love Jesus, they're going to love Him. They're going to trust Him. They're going to have faith in Him. And you pray that that love would grow and intensify. You pray that that faith would grow and intensify. You pray that one day they would place all their trust in Christ. That their allegiance would shift 
to Christ, that they would no longer live for themselves, but live for Him. And you pray for them. And you share the Gospel. And this is what we do with people. And this is how God grows His church. And this is what happened. This is why, this is how there are Christians in this little, small, insignificant town. Because one man was converted and saved. And he went and did what he should have done. And that was to share Christ with those that he loved and prayed. And God made that seed grow. So Paul's writing. Paul's writing to Christians in this small, insignificant town in Colossae. And now let's look at the content. What is this letter actually about? Read a bunch of verses as we describe this and give you a summary of the book, an overview of the book that I hope will whet your appetite. I hope it will get you build some anticipation of what we're going to study. I hope you hear some of these verses and, and begin to look forward to actually landing and spending time on these verses and really talking about what they mean. But let me just give you a few words. Colossians is about change. It's definitely about change. Paul has been changed. You, you heard that when I just shared his testimony a few minutes ago. Paul has been changed. Paul has been given, here's the phrase in the New Testament, new life. So he's been made something new. He's a new creation. Something has died and something is alive. That's how dramatic the change is. So Paul has been changed. The writer, he's been given new life. And the Colossians have been changed. The Colossians have been given new life. And this is what happens to every Christian like Paul, the Colossians, Christians who are here today, Christians who will be here in weeks and months to come. Here's what Christians have in common. Christians have been changed. Radically, dramatically, fundamentally changed. Here's some of the Bible words used to describe this change. Born again. Converted. Regenerated. Rescued. Saved. Recipients of new life. New creations. These are the words used in the Bible to describe the radical change that takes place in a Christian. It says that a Christian has gone from death to life. That's change. Or from darkness to light. Colossians is about change. Colossians is about the new life that Christians have in Christ and the implications of that new life. So what Paul basically does in this letter is he starts by saying this is who Christ is. This is who Jesus is. And this is the new life you now have in Christ. This is your identity in Christ. And now here are the implications of that. Here's then how you ought to live in a manner that's worthy of your calling and pleasing to God. This is how you should live because you've been given this new life in Christ. So, fundamentally, and, and, and this is important to, to think about, and maybe stop for a minute and grasp this fundamental truth that a Christian is someone who has changed. Don't gloss over that. 
We're going to talk more about that change in a minute. But there is teaching that's promoted and has been promoted for a long time that says that you can be a Christian and really not be very different. You can be a Christian and still do the same things you did before you were a Christian, still think the same way you thought before you were a Christian, and still love the same things that you loved before you were a Christian. And the Bible doesn't know about that kind of a Christian. It's not to say that there's not, we'll work this out in our series, it's not to say that there isn't remaining sin. There is. Not to say that a Christian is perfect and has no more sinful desires or sinful thoughts because they do. But it is to say that a Christian has been given new life in Christ. And that new life is evident. When you become a Christian, it's evident to you and it's evident to people around you. What happened to you? You remember getting those questions when you became a Christian? People are just calling you like, where are you? What are you doing? Who are you with? We used to mock those people. Why are you with them? You used to be here every Friday night. Why are you not here anymore? We used to be able to talk about this and connect over this. Why can't we do this anymore? And some of you had to have conversations, didn't you? And you said, you know, I just don't, I just don't want to do that anymore. And maybe you were able to even say, and this is why I just don't want to do that anymore. But if you remember, there was a desire shift. It wasn't just that you were gritting your teeth and all of a sudden you were you know, not doing the things that you still really wanted to do, but you were not going to do them to please God. You didn't want to do the same things that you did anymore. Why? Because it was a change. Now that never happened to you. You're going to have some questions to ask throughout the sermon series. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. Have you heard that phrase? That's a really weird phrase. That is an oxymoron and that doesn't make any sense. A carnal Christian. Well, there's spiritual Christians and carnal Christians. There's no categories like that in the Bible. It was a big controversy decades ago. The, the Lordship Salvation Controversy. Where people said, oh, you can have Christians and carnal Christians. You can have people who really did become a Christian, but they haven't yet said, Jesus, You're my Lord. That's not a Christian. So we have this kind of easy believism, right? You see how this can go. Oh, just, just believe this, say this, do this, and then, you're, and then you're a Christian. And then go, and then maybe they never even end up in a church. They never get connected to other Christians. They never get under sound teaching. They got baptized. They live their whole life thinking they're a Christian. And actually, they weren't one to Christ. They were one to something false and something untrue. Because new life in Christ means change. It means there's a difference. Chapter 2, verse 13. And you, Paul said, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Or chapter 3, verses 1-4 through four, talks about this change, this new life. If then... You've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? What's his reason? For you have died. 
And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Do you hear the language that Paul is using? He's at least saying something has changed in you. You have died. You're dead. God has raised you up. He's given you new life. It means when you become a Christian, you're your orientations change, your inclinations change, your desires change, your thoughts change, your disposition changes, your affections change, your heart, your mind, your behavior, everything changes. This is what a Christian is. So Colossians is about this new changed life in Christ. And now let me wrap this up by giving you four characteristics that we find in the book of Colossians as we summarize what this is about. Four characteristics of this new life that we learn from Colossians. Paul, what is this new life like? Help us out here. Tell us what it's like. Give us some characteristics of it. Well, here's at least four. Number one, new life is from God. New life is from God. Not something you conjure up on your own. Not something you just sign up for in a human way. Not just something you do. It's something done to you. New life is from God. It's given by God. It begins with God. The source of our new life is God. We hear this throughout the letter. This is why in the beginning in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul says we always thank God. He starts by thanking God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So, Paul is thanking God for the faith of the Colossians. Why is he doing that? Why is he thanking God for the Colossians' faith? Why isn't he thanking the Colossians? Thank you for your faith. He thanks God because he knows that God is the giver of faith. So God, thank you for the faith. It is also God who strengthens faith. Paul knows this. Chapter 1, verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. So where does this strengthening come from? His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. It is God who, chapter 1, verse 12, qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It is God, chapter 1, verse 13, who rescues us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And it is God, chapter 1, verse 14, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So, Paul is making very clear that this new life is from God. You don't have it without God. It begins with God. God is the source of this new life. He's responsible for the qualifying, the rescuing, the bringing, the redeeming, the forgiving, and strengthening. The new life is from God. Number two. New life is for God. So new life is from God and new life is for God. 
God, why have You given me this new life? Why have You changed me? Well, foundationally, God has changed you for Himself. He has given you new life for Himself. That you would love Him. That you would honor Him. That you would glorify Him. That you would worship Him. Our life is lived for God. In that sense, our new life begins and ends with God. Chapter 1, verse 9. Here in this passage that new life is for God. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So these Christians, Paul tells them, have been given new life so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. New life is for God. Christians want to please God. No arm twisting necessary for a Christian. A Christian wants to please God. New life means a new desire to honor Him. We can get caught up pleasing the wrong people. We're called to please God. Now what's great is that God calls us to please Him and then He enables us to please Him. Isn't one of the hard things about trying to please people is that you can never keep people happy? If you're trying to get affirmation from people, if you're trying to get acceptance from people, if you're trying to get your uh, self worth and and, and value from somebody else, you're going to have a really hard time and it's going to come and go. And it's a really really nasty idol that ends up with a lot of pain and and struggle when we get caught trying to please people. Well, we're we're to please God. But the great thing about God is is that while His standards are very high, He enables us and gives us the ability and equips us to please Him. So God doesn't say this. God doesn't say you need to live a life that is worthy of of the calling that you have received. You need to live a life that is pleasing to me uh, and good luck with that. My standard is pretty high. His standard is high. That's not how He gets this relationship to work by lowering the bar. So if we're going to have a relationship and so you need to please me because I'm God and... I'm going to have to really lower the bar here and lower my standards so that you can do that. God never does it. His standard remains high. It's perfection. Perfection. It's perfect obedience. Perfect allegiance. Perfect submission. This is what Christ calls His people to do. So the standard is, is really high. But then God doesn't just leave it there and say, good luck with that because you're, you're depraved and sinful and we're born in uh, iniquity and your heart is deceitful beyond all things and beyond cure. Uh, who can even under- He doesn't start throwing out all these verses alone. He sends His Spirit. And He sends His Spirit. What does the Spirit always do? The Spirit always bears fruit. 
The Spirit is a, is a fruit-bearing plant that God implants in the Christian. And a Christian, there is change, and a Christian bears fruit. So God doesn't lower his standards. He calls his people to please him, but he enables them to please him through Christ. And when they don't do what they ought to do, we have 1 John 2, 1, a propitiation and an advocate in Jesus Christ. And so the sin is covered. The sin is forgiven. Don't think that the only time Jesus forgave you is when you became a Christian. He forgives you every hour. Every hour. I forgive you for that. Forgive you for that. Can't believe you're going to say that in three hours. I forgive you for it. Right? Every day, over and over and over again, God is just perpetually forgiving us of our sin. So new life is for God. Number three, new life is for God, but new life is for others. New life is for others. We have been changed for God and changed for others. For the glory of God and the good of others. So, we'll see this in Colossians. Colossians talks a lot about loving one another and the implications of this new life in our relationships with each other. It's exemplified by Paul. Paul clearly is living for others. Living for God, number one. Living for others, second. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Second command is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's doing that. He's thanking God for them. He's writing this letter to them. He prays for them. We're going to read the prayer in a couple weeks. He preaches to them. He's suffering for them. Chapter 1, verses 24-25. And he says he desires their perfection and their maturity in verse 28. So Paul is exhausting himself for others because new life is for others. It's for the good of those around you. Your friends, your family should benefit because you're a Christian. They should reap a reward because you're a Christian. They're blessed because they know you and you're going to love them and care for them and be selfless with them in, in, in a way that only Christ enables people to do. As well, as Paul goes on and talks about new life being for others, he gets down very practical and even talks about the different spheres of life and how this new life needs to play out. He talks about the home in chapter 3, verses 18-21. through 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. New life is for others, including your husband or your wife or your kids or your parents. A new life is also for others in the workplace. He addresses this in chapter 3, verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In summary, we read in chapter 3, verses 12-17, through 17, new life is to be lived out with one another. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 
bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You can't extract from these verses in Colossians that Christianity is an isolated, individualistic, all-about-me religion. Christians have been given new life for God, number one, but for others. For others. This new life does not consist merely of our private practices of prayer and secret giving to God and communion with God, though those are important elements of our relationship with God. But Christianity is not just a private thing. In fact, privacy ultimately, if taken too far, is a threat. Is a threat to Christianity. Now don't get me wrong. There are things that need to be kept private. And some of us wish that others would be more private than they are about things that they broadcast before us. We're constantly thinking or saying that is way too much information. We say things like, I did not need to know that. I don't want to know that. And they think we're joking when we say that. But we're actually not. We're queasy. (laughs) There's a place for privacy. But privacy taken too far is an enemy to Christianity. We cannot hide from one another. We cannot conceal things from one another. It must be brought to the light. And you hear this kind of one another life that is being talked about. Bearing burdens. Confessing sin. Singing songs to one another. This is not a privatized life. This is a life that is lived with and before other Christians. In that regard, it is an open book. This is who I am. These are my faults. These are my failures. These are my scars. This is who I am. I need Christ and I need His help through His people. So new life is for others. And then finally, number four, new life is forever. This new life we've been given will be threatened, but it will never be ultimately defeated. It will be contested from without. It will be contested from within. Paul's going to talk about all that. This new life is contested from within through this old self that hangs on, this old man, this old woman, the flesh remaining sin, this remnant that still has life in it that tries to lead us away from God to the world. We'll struggle with that our whole life. But we're not just being contested from within. We're also being contested from without. It was a specific problem in Colossae with false teachers that we don't know exactly what they were teaching. It wasn't good. Paul warned them not to be led astray through these empty philosophies. These things that sound good, but in the end, it's a dead end. 
and will not get you where you need to be or where you want to be. Mark Dever said, the church triumphant is the church in heaven delivered from sins, enjoying God's presence, made pure and holy in fact. The church militant is the church on earth, struggling still with sin, beset by difficulties within and without, declared perfectly holy in Christ, showing that holiness in increasing measure through the work of Christ's Spirit in and among its members. So, new life is forever. If you've been given new life by God, you cannot lose new life. So, one of Paul's motivators is never follow God and honor God or you will lose this new life that He has given you. That's never a way that Paul, or the Bible for that matter, motivates Christians to obedience. Obey or else. The new life God gave you, He might just take it. That's not true. It's not true. I shared that illustration a couple weeks ago. I know many of you found it helpful. Donald Gray, Barnhouse, who said that Christians fall down on the deck of the ship, but they never fall out of the ship. That's really important. Now, it's not to say that there aren't some people who think they're on the ship and they're not. You're still not falling out of the ship. You're just falling down outside of the ship. We'll talk about that in Colossians. And you actually need to come to Christ. And you actually don't believe the Gospel. And you're not a Christian yet. We hope you become a Christian. But if you are in Christ, if you are in that ship, you will never fall out of the ship. You fall down on the deck. A flight of stairs sometimes. But you won't fall out. Because new life is forever. So in conclusion... People should see the Gospel is true by the change it works in those who believe it. So people hear the Gospel declared and people should see the power of the Gospel demonstrated. This is what's supposed to happen between Christians and non-Christians. I hear the Gospel and then I see the implications of the Gospel. I hear the Gospel and then I see the truth of the Gospel playing out in this person's life. And that only happens if there is change. And there will be change in a Christian. So we'll be asking ourselves throughout this sermon series, how do I need to change? If you're not a Christian, there needs to be a big change. And some of you who are Christians, there needs to be big changes. There's things that you've been content with that you shouldn't be content with. And there's things that you've entertained that you shouldn't entertain. And there's things that you've fostered in your life that you shouldn't. And there's things that need to be cut off. There's things that need to be put behind you and done away with. And now's going to be the time. Now's going to be the time. Because as Christians, we are not only a people who have been changed, but called to change. Colossians is about the new life a Christian has in Christ. A Christian has been radically changed by God. And the Christian has been radically changed by God for a reason. For our joy, for the glory of God, and for the good of others. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven,
we had asked that You would reveal to us ways that we still need to change. God, make us a humble people. Make us a selfless people. Uh, people who do not resist the introspection that's necessary to see our own sin and our own folly and turn from it and be done with it and, and, and ask for Your help and ask for others' help because our desire is so great to be holy before You and to please You and to honor You. Help us in that, God. We pray that we would become more pure in our worship as a church as You continue to grow us like trees and, and bear good fruit in us. Pray that even this morning as we continue to sing to You and remember the sacrifice You made in Christ, pray that we be sincere in our thoughts and sincere in our words and singing to You so that You would receive the honor that You are worthy of. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.